subject of this morning's message is by witness of the scripture, something that God considers very important. It's so important that the Bible tells us to make every effort to maintain it. It's so important that Jesus tells us if we don't have it, we should press the pause button on our worship until we do. It's so important that the credibility of the gospel message rests on it. And the it to which I am referring is unity. Believers living together in unity. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, this morning to Psalm 133. We weren't planning on going here, but it's a great place to go. Psalm 133. While you're turning there, know that Psalm 133 is uh, one of the Psalms that's categorized as a Psalm of Ascent. That is one of the many songs that the Jewish people would sing on their way uh, to Jerusalem to worship, on their way up to worship. The Psalms of Ascent, also known as Pilgrim Psalms, and one author refers to them as Songs for the Road. Psalms of Ascent provide encouragement on the journey. In this particular psalm, Psalm 133, is a celebration of the blessing of being together with believers who have the same heart, who have the same mind, and who have the same love. Psalm 133. If you're looking in the Bibles provided, you'll find it on page 615. A song of a sense of David, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. How good and pleasant it is. The scripture teaches us right off the bat that unity is good. And the word that's translated good there means in nature excellent or appropriate, simply a good thing. It's the same word that God used after creation. He looked upon creation and he declared that it was good. Unity is good. And the psalmist tells us that unity is pleasant. That means that it is nice, that it is, that it is delightful, that it is agreeable, that it is beautiful, it is good, it is pleasant. And believers live together, dwell together in unity. That word dwell, translated dwell or live, it comes from a root word that means to sit down. It, it means to remain. Whenever I visited my grandfather years ago, he would always say, sit down. You didn't really want to ever go to his place and not take some time to sit down. So he would say, sit down. Of course, we sat down. And then no matter how long we had been there, whether it was 15 minutes or four hours, invariably, when it was time to go, as we get up, he would always say, no matter how long we'd been there, what's your hurry? What's your hurry? That's a great question for us today, isn't it? What's your hurry that you can't sit down with someone? What's your hurry that you can't remain with someone for a while? How good and pleasant it is when believers are with each other. Not, that, not just that they bear one another or endure each other, or that they get along in passing, but when they are with 
each other, when they stay beside each other, when they do life together is what this psalm's talking about, how good and pleasant it is when that happens. Now the psalmist moves on in order to show us how good and pleasant it is when believers dwell together in unity. He uses two images, which is a bit unfortunate for us, but neither one of these images means much in 2020 in America, does it? You heard it. You read it. You went, what is this? Most of you did. Those of you who are honest, some of you Bible scholars knew exactly where this is going. But the imagery would have spoken so loudly to the original audience, doesn't speak as loudly to us, doesn't mean that it's not pertinent or, or important, just means we have to work a little bit harder to understand it. He uses the image of oil. When we think of oil, we probably think of Saudi Arabia, or barrels of oil, or petroleum, but this is really anointing oil, perfume type of oil. It was a sign of hospitality to anoint guests with oil. Remember David said of God that you anoint my head with oil. I mean, you've, I found favor with you because you have anointed my head with oil. You might remember a story of Jesus in the home of a Pharisee when a, a woman who was admittedly sinful uh, anointed his feet with perfume and and she was being spoken to rather harshly, and he was criticized for, uh, you know, for, for allowing that, and he confronted the host. and said, what? Look what she's doing. You didn't even anoint me when I came through the door. So anointing with oil is an Eastern custom that we can understand, even if it's not one that we practice. The oil of anointing that's spoken of here in Psalm 133 however, is just a bit of a different oil. Exodus 30 tells us about it. It was a fragrant blend, an anointing oil of many different spices. The oil itself is an image of unity. Many ingredients made into one beautiful smelling oil. This was God's recipe, and it was used in a very specific application. This oil had a special purpose. It signified his choosing, and it signified his blessing on those who would serve him. It's the oil that would be poured on Aaron. It's the oil that the high priest would be anointed with. And it signified God's presence. And it signified the presence of the Holy Spirit. So it was precious. And it was sweet smelling. And it was a sign of God's favor. And the image then is of that precious, sweet smelling sign poured down over the head down the face, onto the collar, onto the robes. In other words, it wasn't just dabbed on. It wasn't sparingly used. It is God just pouring this out. The picture is one of his abundant presence, one of his abundant blessing, that his, that his favor is just generously being lavished all over a people. This is what it's like to be part of God's people who live in unity. This oil of God sets believers apart. It shows us when we live in unity that we are accepted by God. It shows us that we are cared for by God, received. And it, and it makes us spiritually smell good. When you think about it, John Piper's right when he says unity is the church's perfume. And the second image that the psalmist uses is morning dew. That unity is like dew. We are familiar with that. We know what it's like to get up in the morning and 
walk outside on a summer day across the lawn and see the tracks that we make or get our sneakers wet. Anybody ever raked blueberries? You know, those first couple of hours out there on the barrens, your feet are unbearably soaked because we understand this concept of dew, but we kind of take it for granted. In fact, we think, boy, I wish that would go away so the lawn would dry up so it'll feel better when I walk through it in my bare feet. Not so in an arid place like Jerusalem. Dew has a bit of a different meaning over there. In places that don't have much rain, God uses the dew to nourish the earth, to provide the moisture that is needed for the plants, even the liquid that the animals need to survive. Jerusalem is a dry place in Israel, and it can go for months without rain. So dew falls every day on Mount Zion. It's a good sign. It's a sign of God's blessing because it refreshes the earth and it makes things to grow. That's Mount Zion. Now Mount Hermon, not Hermon Mountain, Mount Hermon is, is a big mountain uh, north of Jerusalem. It's a very big mountain when you compare it to Mount Zion. Around here you could probably say, okay, Cadillac to Blue Hill Mountain would be comparable or even uh, Katahdin to Blue Hill Mountain. Okay, that's Zion is small, Hermon is big. So you've got that in your mind. Now think of this. Hermon likewise was blessed every day with dew. You take all that moisture, all that refreshing dew in the mountain, that great big mountain, and you put it on the small one. You take all that and you bring it over to Zion. And what do you have but a picture again of abundant refreshing, of more than enough moisture, more than enough coolness, more than enough provision for the day, of God's generous supply. That's what the psalmist is trying to, to get at here. That's what he wants us to understand, that unity is like being covered in a fragrant perfume where if a little is good, more is better. And unity is like dry ground covered with cool, refreshing dew, water every day where if a little is good, then more is better. You know, the church can never get Enough unity can never get too much unity. All right? and you'll never hear that complaint. Not from a pastor and probably not from a congregant. We're just too doggone unified around here. <laughs> the church can never get enough. The nicest thing about this unity that we read in Psalm 133 is that this is where God commands his blessing. This is where God is honored and this is where God honors us. His blessing rests on the church. His blessing rests on the people who live in unity. Now, if unity among brothers and sisters is good and pleasant, then disunity, we might say, add. Certainly, it's unpleasant. That conflicts in fighting and disagreements are not good. That arguing and bickering and, and harboring anger toward one another uh, in the church of God is not pleasant at all. If unity is like a fragrant perfume, then lack of unity is like a rotten smell. Thinks the rotten smell to God and to everyone else for that matter when his children don't get along. I preached this text last February in the Dominican Republic. And in the Dominican Republic, often in the evening, people will light fires to burn the garbage on the street outside their homes. That's curbside cleanup in the Dominican. Garbage is everywhere. 
These people aren't responsible for all the garbage that's in front of their house. It just gets deposited there because folks are throw it all the time. And at some point, people who care about what's in front of their home will scrape it up and they'll set it on fire. How to clean it up. And many times, uh, many fires will be started through a barrio, through a bate, through a village. And this smoke, you might imagine, is not the most pleasant smelling smoke. Like it's not like here when you step outside and Finn's is making a nice roast. <laughs> and the wind is coming this way and you feel drawn. Not that kind. Because it, it, it is the, the burning remnants of refuse, of household garbage, of spoiled food, whatever else that they hope will burn. And the smoke rises and it wafts into the community, whichever way the wind is blowing, and everybody in the community smells it. Some people, I suppose, get used to it. Visitors like us, not so much. That rotten smell is what disunity is like when a church acts out, when a church garners that reputation as being a group that would turn on one another or chew up pastors and spit them out. Eventually, everybody knows Everybody knows because of the smell coming out of that church. So it's good and it's pleasant when brothers dwell together in unity. It is bad and it is unpleasant when we don't. Unity is like a refreshing dew that waters the thirsty ground. And lack of unity is like a relentless heat. It dries up the spirit. It dries up the joy. It dries up the energy of a family, the vibrancy of a church. The fellowship becomes dry, the singing is dry, the sermon's very dry. Because the unity, which is of the Spirit, the unity which is of the Spirit is gone. And when there is no presence of the Holy Spirit in the middle, there'll be no true refreshing. He's coming in and being fed and leaving and feeling blessed because there's no unity there. There's no refreshing. And if unity is where God commands the blessing, which it is, that's what the Bible says, then lack of unity among his people is something simply that God cannot bless. Or we have to keep an eye out for it and, and, and make every effort to preserve it. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.3, right? Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In other words, you, imperative, you, implied, you make the effort to do this. It falls on you. And that's something for us to think about because we're sort of nursed on American individualism. We can love our country, but it doesn't always have the right values. And we can begin to think that if I'm okay, then that's all that really matters. And I don't have to think too much about what else is going on around me, but there's a lot hinging on this unity thing. You make every effort to preserve this. Don't just dismiss it. Don't pretend it doesn't matter. Don't treat it lightly. Now, if we're supposed to make every effort to preserve the unity, that raises a few questions for us, doesn't it? Like, how can we do that? How can we keep unity in the church? How do we preserve it? 
One, one way we do that is by recognizing what causes disunity. Having it clear in our mind what causes disunity. Well, we have an enemy, the devil, who the scripture says roars, is, a, is a roaring lion who wanders about seeking to devour whom he may, who wants us to be isolated, who desires to scatter this herd, so to speak. But we have an enemy. Not only is he seeking to devour whom he may, which is what Peter tells us about him, but pastor and author Tim Challies reminds us this. He says, Satan hates God, and therefore he hates God's people, the church. His great plan for the church is to cause Christians, true believers who ought to be together in the gospel, to find ways of disagreeing among themselves, to divide, to be bitter and jealous, and ultimately, and he's quoting Galatians 5.15 now, to bite and devour one another. We an enemy who himself is not only a threat, but wants to make us actually, wants to arm us, wants to weaponize the church against itself. That enemy is real. Uh, acknowledge that. But he's not the only enemy we have, beloved. Sometimes we are an enemy to unity. The whole thing, I have met the enemy and he is us, something along those lines. We are an enemy to unity when we are too proud to forgive someone. We're an enemy to unity when we are too embarrassed to make amends with those we have wronged. We just won't go to them and say, I was wrong. We're an enemy to unity when we're waiting for the person that we are in conflict with to make the first move. When we fold our arms and just say, you started this. It isn't going to be finished unless you come to me. The Apostle James identifies self-ambition and envy as barriers to our peace with one another. It tells us that unity is not going to live where people think about themselves first. Unity is not going to live where people are jealous of what other people have. We should recognize what causes a lack of unity, and by God's grace, we should commit to stop doing those things. That's part of our transformation as Christians. It's part of our growth. It's what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us, make us more like Jesus, and get those things that create disunity out of our lives. But we have to recognize what causes disunity. We also should do the things that lead to unity. Because unity lives where we have a culture of giving preference to each other, where we think of others above ourselves, where we're not all, all at once at least, clamoring to have our own way. The story is told of a family from New York who, intending to raise cattle, bought a ranch out west. And when their friends visited, inquired about the ranch's name, the would-be rancher replied, well, I wanted to name it the Bar J. My wife favored Susie Q. One of our sons wanted the Flying W, and the other liked the Lazy Y. So we're calling it the Bar J Susie Q Flying W Lazy Y. The friend asked, well, where are all your cattle? And the reply was, well, none of them survived the branding. 
I'm pretty sure that's not true. But isn't that an apt illustration of the destructive effects of everyone insisting on their own way? Oh, that's an illustration of what happens when we all insist on our own way. The Apostle Paul gives us good advice on how to find unity. The unity that delights our God. The unity that invites his blessing. He says in Ephesians 4.2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. It gives us something to strive for, doesn't it? Especially that word completely. And if he said be occasionally, we could strive for that. But this completely humble and gentle, who does that remind you? Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Why, why do we have to be patient? Because unity doesn't mean unanimity. Unity does not mean that we're always going to see eye to eye. We will not always agree. And we don't have to. Disagreement doesn't mean that we can't experience unity. We can disagree and still have unity because this is a unity of the spirit. It's elsewhere called the unity of the faith. And we may be in, at odds sometimes over certain details. We have been, and we will be again in the future. But we can still agree in principle on the things that matter most. Why we're here. That we exist to proclaim the gospel. And that we're here to give glory to God. And we can acknowledge that we're all trying to figure out how best to do that in this plane. We're all in that same battle. So we maintain unity when we're humble and when we're gentle and when we're patient and when we bear with one another in love as we work these things out. Because God wants what's best for us and God wants what brings him glory. If we are faithful to him, we will work all these things out. Now, being completely humble and gentle and patient and bearing with one another in love. I'm not sure. I can speak for you. I can speak for me. This does not come natural. Again, it's on us to value it, to strive for it, to go after it, to make every effort to preserve it, to work at unity and to guard our unity because it's a precious gift according to the word of God. What does that mean? Well, it means as individuals, we must make every effort to live at peace with all men. That's what Romans 12, 18 says. We make every effort to live at peace with all. We know some people won't be reconciled. We know some people won't be at peace. We understand that. But we try. We have to try as much as possible. And we have to keep trying. Apostle Peter would say, how many times, Lord? Seven? Keep trying. We have to love people even though some people in our lives are hard to love. Isn't it Mother Teresa who said some people are hard to love, love them anyway? Keep trying to love people. Keep loving people. As church members and leaders, we're going to have to exhort. We're going to have to confront. If needed, we may even have to discipline those who in this body are in deliberate, divisive ways. Scripture talks about that. It says, mark the divider. Warn him once. After that, have nothing to do with him. That's not the kind of language you hear coming out of pulpits in 2020. America. But it's what the Bible says, is it not? And as a church, we just want to 
value unity and strive for it and not take it for granted, but again, to see it as God's blessing in our lives. And we might ask, and we will in concluding, why so important? Why does it matter to God? And the answer to the question is found in John chapter 17, which is the longest recorded prayer of our Lord. And in John 17, as Jesus prepares to leave this world, he intercedes for his disciples. And he prays for his disciples. I don't ask for these only, around verse 20, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Not only is Jesus here praying for his disciples, but he's praying for the disciples that will be made by his disciples, which means he's praying for. All those years ago, Jesus Christ prayed for you. Prayed for us. Loves his church that much. It was on his heart then, it's on his heart now. I don't ask for those only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sinned. effective witness of the church hinges on the church's unity. Our unity substantiates our claims. It affirms the truth of the message. Did you ever think of it that way? Whether or not we get along, whether or not we can sit with one another and love one another through things, either, either proves that the gospel is true or casts dispersion on it and causes doubt. Unity substantiates our claims. Our unity affirms, confirms the message that the church has to the world. And what is that message? It is the message of the cross, is it not? Explained by, again, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The message of the cross, the message of the gospel, is that God, through the sacrifice of Jesus, has reconciled us to himself, and not only to himself, but to one another. That there should be no dividing wall of hostility between believers. That Jesus came to make us one. Prayed that we would be one. Says that our oneness, unity, will be a reason for non-believers to believe. Feel the words of Mark Dever, the church is the display of God's glory. God who reconciled us to himself gives us the power to be reconciled to one another. Thus we display his glory. How would anyone believe the Bible? Believe the word of God. Believe the gospel that we can have peace with God if we do not have peace with one another. Why would anyone believe that we can be reconciled to God if we're not willing to practice reconciliation with one another? You see, this is why the unity of the faith, not just any unity, the unity of the faith, the unity of the spirit, not just getting along, but the unity of the spirit is no small thing. Psalm 133 is a small psalm. 
but it holds a big idea. We are blessed, I feel, in this body by the unity of the Spirit. We, we must make an effort to preserve that unity. And not take it for granted and not just assume it's always been this way, it always will be this way. You have to be diligent about these things. But I can tell you this, as your pastor, it is not hard for me to identify with David, who's watching his friends, his literal and, and spiritual brothers and sisters marching towards Jerusalem with the same mind, with the same intention, with the same goal, which is to worship the living God. It's not hard for me to identify with David there, who was entirely impressed with the scene before him, and who just looked on it and said, how good. How sweet this is. Sitting in the back of this church, as I was privileged to do just a couple of weeks ago, listening to the testimonies of how the Lord's at work in the lives of our congregation members. Watching the choreography of every Friday afternoon soup for the soul. Fascinating. Seeing these little ones march out to children's church and all the faithful helpers with them. One or two people who are trying to get away from the sermon. <laughs> Boarding a plane, friends from other churches in our nation to go minister the Dominican Republic watching deacons and teams come together around the table and talk things through and solve problems and achieve common goals. Celebrating God's amazing provision for the ministries that he's called us to in a budget meeting that lasts only 25 minutes. Just a sampling, is it not, of the blessed unity that we enjoy by God's grace and faith. How good and pleasant that is. Some of you have been on the other side of things. You understand how bad and unpleasant it is. I'm saying, look around and understand how good and pleasant it is here by God's grace because He's good. Now, Psalm 133 was sung as an encouragement, and I want that exact same thing for you. The message is, keep it up. The message is, keep it up. See, when we love, when we forgive, when we overlook offenses, when we turn the other cheek, when we take the initiative and seek out those from whom we are estranged, the way that Jesus did, the way that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, when we act the way that Jesus did, when he emptied himself to become a servant, when we die to ourselves for the sake of others and the glory of God the way Jesus did for us, when we lock arms and we march together in service to the living God, giving of ourselves for the good of others and for the sake of God's glory, we image the gospel. We show people what is right and true. 
and what God in Christ can do for them because it's what he's done for us. How good, how pleasant it is. Brothers and sisters live together in unity. Father, we praise you and thank you for the power of your word rattle us a bit and remind us of the things that are really important we might be inclined to take for granted. Praise you for the unity of the Spirit, bond of peace that we enjoy by your mercy and grace. Pray that we would indeed be faithful as your children to do everything we can to preserve it, not just because it makes our lives easier, but because it has everything to do with how we might be and how we are perceived and our unbelieving family members co-workers friends let them see the unity we enjoy let them be envious of that unity let them desire it let them hear the gospel so that they can have it pray in Jesus name Amen Absolutely.